gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the Stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey, everybody. Welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. This is the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Now, please welcome the originator of the Studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, we're getting close. Santa Claus is coming. Merry Christmas. Oh, same here, man. Yes, this is a this is definitely a Christmas episode right here. We'll be talking a whole lot about Christmas today. Santa's going to have a big part of this show today. Um <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's going to be fun, fun for everyone, hopefully, man. That's awesome. All right, listen, something has happened on your Facebook and your Twitter, and I saw it in the last couple of days, and I think it's pretty awesome. Your son, Chad, and he's a pretty big boy, he brought his son, Charles, your grandson, over to hang out with you guys, and that really has lit up Facebook and Twitter in the last few days. Your grandson, Charles, you said he is either 6'6 six, six or 6'7. Six, he's taller than Robert, and he's 14 years old. I just went, holy cow. Yeah, he's a, he's a monster. He's a pretty big boy. He's 6'5. Uh, Rob's about 6'4, uh, close to 6'5. But uh, we took a picture together, and gosh, uh, Charles looked uh, taller than Rob, considerably taller than Rob. You know, and I don't see him, but uh, sometimes every other month or so and wow i mean every time he shows up i'm like gee (laughs) how big is he gonna get and then then we had a real good opportunity uh i got down on the floor and wrestled with both of them and (laughs) we we recorded some of that we put it on twitter uh we put it on facebook twitter this is uh two days later less than two days later after we did that has already got over twenty thousand views of it uh wow Wow. So it's it's become pretty popular and uh and then I basically just showed them the fuller leg lock, you know, the the right. big, a simple, easy way of getting it. And uh fans uh, and people <laughs> from all over the world are are just kind of uh lighting up because of it, man. They're like, Wow, that's cool, really cool. I uh, listen, I, I, I've been in I've been there at that apartment where you live uh, in the St. Pete area. And you were you were working out a little bit with Chad and a little bit with Charles. And listen, I'm glad we only visited because with one finger, and I think you said your dad kind of originated this, with one finger, you could have you could have really done some damage. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's a good enough hold that uh, you can you can make anybody give up with just tap out with one <laughs> finger. And uh, needless to say, if you want to grab both both handfuls and go south with it. Yeah. Uh, you can break legs and tear out knees and I mean, cause a heck of a lot of damage. It's a, it's what's called a shooter's move, man. And, uh, right. it's a really good one. So, uh, hey, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I know that was a, the, an, an awesome opportunity to visit with your son and your grandson as the holidays uh, close in. And I know you're proud of both of them. Yeah. Yeah, sure. am. And, uh, you know, Charles is a really big boy. And, uh, for those that ha- haven't seen this, if you'd like to go to Facebook, uh, and if you're not a friend already with me, you can go to Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, a page on Facebook, and you can uh, just like me and follow me, and uh, you automatically become a friend there, and you can see that video. And and on Twitter, it's at Ron Fuller Welch. Pretty simple to find it there. 
And, uh, you know, I appreciate all the comments. I've had, uh, geez, literally thousands of comments in the last mm-hmm. couple of days. And I want to thank everybody. And you, the comments are all great, you know, and it's, and, uh, you know, it probably is a pretty good way to spend uh, with your son and your grandson in a little physical altercation. And as, as Lou Kippelman, <laughs> our producer here, sent me this, this thing about an episode of Seinfeld in which, in which that's part, basically what it's all about Christmas time. The, the, the big male in the family uh, shows his strength and power. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, yeah, fans take a look at it if you would like. I mean, I think you find it interesting. It's pretty cool. Oh, no doubt. You got to check it out on Facebook and on Twitter. All right, let's move on to Super Stuckcast number 36, part one with WWE Hall of Famer Coco Beware has rocketed the Christmas season off. And I also hear there is a change in part two, Ron. Tell us about that. Well, I'm sorry to report. I had Norvell. I've talked to Norvell a couple of times. I had him all set up, but, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly uh, why it's not going to happen now, uh, but it isn't going to happen now. And then, oddly enough, boy, my brother stepped up. He called me a couple of days ago, and he goes, Ron, you know, I want to do something with you. He goes, I I think we ought to have a very Merry Fuller Brothers Christmas special, man. (laughs) So I said, okay, Rob. So that's going to become part two of this Super Stud Cast number 36 with Coco Beware on the front of it. And me and Rob are going to talk about wrestling on Christmas. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, the Christmases that we had as boys growing up, uh, how my father uh, treated people on Christmas and what we did on Christmas was probably unusual in a lot of families. And uh, so I think that'll be a real interesting one. And uh, Coco, like you said, has got things kicked off, man. People are really loving the Coco Beware one, uh, part one. And uh, now part two, we're going to be recording and we're going to we're going to make that available on Christmas Day for fans at Super Studcast number 36. And then we'll be telling them, I guess, later in the show. Right, Dave, where where they can find it and that type of thing. Absolutely. Odds makers in Las Vegas are laying uh, money against how long you and Rob can stay in the same room at, at one time. So that's, <laughs> that's going to be fun. And we'll, we'll give you information on that. That's coming up. So that's going to be pretty cool right there. All right. So knowing you and your brother is, is, is it's definitely going to be all about Christmas and released on Christmas day at that. So again, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. We'll talk more later on. All right, so where are we riding today, Ron? Well, we've got another loaded one again today, Dave. I mean, we're going to gallop into today's training. Uh, we're going to focus on the, the magic of Christmas matches and what they added to the Christmas season. We'll look at the Christmas night card for Knoxville in 1976. Uh, we're going to describe the two TVs that are going to be promoting this card because it's going to be on a Saturday night rather than a Friday night. It's going to be on Christmas. And we'll talk about the results of those matches. We'll talk about the size of the crowd. Uh, and and like I said in the opening, Santa's going to play a, a big part in the Christmas night of 1976. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we're going to finish this Christmas special with a very appropriate learning tree question from a gentleman that asked, uh, what was it like for wrestlers and their families to be a part on major holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas? Very appropriate question. So looking forward to that. Uh, absolutely. Sounds like this is really going to be a special Christmas stud cast, Ron. Yep, it certainly is. So, uh, so Christmas, uh, you know, I think should always be something special. And it is for almost everybody. It's it's most people's favorite holiday of the year. Mm-hmm. And this stud cast, uh, uh, I'm kind of going to, this kind of my way of giving back to all those thousands and thousands of loyal listeners we have out there that has made the stud cast one of the biggest and best in all of wrestling at this point. I really appreciate it. And it, I think this is one, this is a way of kind of giving back to everyone for being there and uh, supporting us. And I really, really appreciate it. Well, there you are. Always the giver and always giving back. And listen, you you can help because Ron makes zero on the stud cast. He's, he's spent a tremendous amount of time, 179 hours plus, and that counts today's show. So if you want to give back and you can help Ron stay in the game a little bit longer, and you can do that at patreon.com slash studcast. All right, Ron, I have got my special horse, Admiral Limpalong, saddled up, 
and ready for a Christmas ride. You ready? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> what? Now, two weeks ago, your horse was named Pickles. And last Pickles. week, what was your horse name last week? It, it was Uncle Fester's Revenge. Uncle Fester's Revenge. <laughs> yeah. And, and this week, your horse's name is what? Ad, Admiral Limpalong. <laughs> Admiral Limpalong. Oh, uh, boy, I'll tell you, man. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's hard to keep up with your horse's name, but I don't believe Admiral Limpalong is going to do too good with hanging in there with old lightning. <laughs> well, I, you, you keep insulting my horses. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know, but I'm going to keep switching until I find a horse that can keep up with lightning. Uh, that's, that's my plan. <laughs> well, good luck on that one, Dave. <laughs> So today's training, it requires us to wear a promoter's hat. Uh, and uh, only a wrestling promoter can come up with the idea of combining a big holiday with wrestling matches to celebrate it. And uh, this night was a perfect match, uh, pardon the expression, of families, holidays, and, uh, and a sporting event. So just like Thanksgiving, the holiday season continued on Christmas in Southeastern by this point. This is the first year we're going to celebrate both of them. Uh, and it's with a family event uh, that goes along with the day. So the Christmas night in 1976, uh, we'll be discussing in depth uh, later in this studcast, was the second of 11 straight Christmas nights that Southeastern and Continental Wrestling were going to present wrestling somewhere in the South. That string ended, obviously, when I retired and sold my last wrestling company, USA Wrestling, in 1988. Every one of those Christmas events sold out, all 11 of them in those 11 years. The first one in Knoxville's Chilhowee Park in 1975, which is the year before that we're going to be talking today. And, and through the next 10 years, we're going to be eventually from 85 through 1987 wrestling in two cities on the same days. And we'll be Continental Championship wrestling by that time frame, no longer Southeastern. We are going to run Knoxville in the afternoon in Birmingham, Alabama that night on both holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Wait now. So it seems, as I recall, you have a pretty chiseled company. So you're, you say your company's wrestled in two different cities on Thanksgiving and Christmas in 85, 86, and 87. So how do you do that? You Two cities in the same day? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Dave. Uh, that's exactly what we did. Uh, so... Uh, and here's the kind of how it happened. Uh, after changing the name of the territory in 1985 from Southeastern to Continental, we in that same year were able to return to Knoxville and that Kentucky area that we had uh, that I had owned a lot earlier in, uh, Knox, in Southeastern uh, Knoxville's territory. And we also added Chattanooga to that original Southeastern wrestling territory of Southeastern in 1974. So beginning in 1985, we expanded our territory, basically, from the Gulf Coast down there in Pensacola, Panama City, almost all the way to Ohio. And uh, to emphasize that expansion, we changed the name of the company from Southeastern to Continental Championship Wrestling. We moved our TV production from a TV studio into the 7,000-seat Boutwell Auditorium in Birmingham, and we brought in Gordon Soley as the commentator. Wow. So we were, during that time frame, preparing to compete with Vince McMahon Jr. in the beginning of his attempt to take over all of wrestling. Whoa, Ron. I mean, i got to rein my horse in, uh, Admiral Limpalong, for a second to make sure I understand this. In 1985, Southeastern Wrestling became Continental Wrestling and almost doubled its size. New That's TV, correct. new commentator, and you even returned to the original Southeastern Territory of Knoxville. That's correct, and and uh, geez, you're you're keeping up with things good today, Dave. I mean, uh, wow. So uh, you know, but uh, we're going to talk about that at another time. Obviously, that's in the future uh, as far as studcasts go. But uh, let's go back to your first question that you asked about how did we run two towns on the same day in two different cities right. on Thanksgiving and Christmas? So bear in mind during this time frame, uh, we're talking about 1985, 86, and 87. Uh, all the wrestlers still lived in Pensacola, Florida. So here's how we did it. We drove, and this is pretty staggering. Uh, you know, fans had to really think about this. We drove more than 500 miles to work a spot show in Knoxville, Tennessee, 
on the day before Thanksgiving and also on the day before Christmas. So mm. we got up early in the morning the day before Thanksgiving on a Wednesday and got in the car and drove for eight hours, sometimes longer if we wrestled in Kentucky. We'd have to go past Knoxville. And then we would uh, wrestle there on Wednesday night. In the case of Thanksgiving, since we're talking about Christmas, Mm -hmm. we wrestled there the night before Christmas. And then on Christmas night, we would uh, stay somewhere close to Knoxville. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we're going to wrestle in the Knoxville Coliseum. So we got ourselves a hotel room after traveling 500 miles and driving back to Knoxville. Wow. Uh, Get up the next day, have yourself some breakfast. And uh, then uh, early in the afternoon, you head down to the Coliseum in Knoxville. So immediately following those matches in Knoxville, wrestlers got a quick shower, and they left to drive 250 miles south to Birmingham, Alabama. And they all worked in the Bout Bell Auditorium that same night in matches that started at 8 o'clock Central Time. Now, was this, your, was this the entire crew that did this? Everybody's Every in cars, a caravan? If you wrestled in Knoxville, you wrestled that same night in Birmingham. So, yes, they all went and made that same trip. Uh, we started at 3 o'clock Eastern time in Knoxville in the afternoon, and the Birmingham show started at 8 p.m. Central time. Were you so, guys, like, in a, in a caravan? How many cars? Did you stay together in the cars? Nope. Nope. Uh, most so of those can- guys, sometimes there'd be two guys in the car. Sometimes right. there'd be four guys in the car. But uh, as they finished the matches, they would load up and they would head out. Uh, so the, as soon as they finished, they took a quick right. shower, they hit the road. So some got there quicker, right? Some got there sooner than others. You're in the okay. main event, you're going to get there just in time to wrestle in the main event in Birmingham, basically. Did you, did you worry about all your guys getting together at the same place at the at the same time like they should? Oh, yeah, yeah. You're always worried about somebody broke, the car breaks down, uh, something bad happens, you get snow, you know, and people can't drive that distance very fast. Uh, I mean, a lot of things can happen to, to lose that Birmingham show. Did you have but, cell phones uh, back then? Uh, no. Right, too soon. <laughs> Nobody had a cell phone back in those days, you All know. Right, okay. So you were in pretty big trouble. So there's no way it could have been done if it had, if those cities had been in the same time zone. Yeah. Uh, Knoxville being in Eastern time, Birmingham in Central time, you yeah. save an hour there uh, going west in the country. So it could only be done because of that, that making it an hour earlier in Birmingham, uh, it made it happen. So that additional hour allowed, allowed us to do both cities. So when Birmingham matches were finished, now they've <laughs> you got up in the morning, uh, you've hung around the hotel a little bit, you've gone to the building in Knoxville, you've wrestled, you've got in your car, you've driven 250 miles to Birmingham, and then you wrestle again a second time, and then you get back in your car, and you're 250 miles from Pensacola and home. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and it's close to midnight. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But. The good thing about it was it allowed us to entertain 12,000 fans in one day, sometimes more than 12,000 fans in one day in two different cities uh, that were separated by only five hours in starting time. So, I bet uh, you guys made some good money, too. Oh, so absolutely. You know, one other thing, I, what I was just about to get to, one other very important thing happened twice a year for the wrestlers was uh, when we ran those cities back-to-back, wrestlers make about a 1000 bucks a day. So that was equal in today's money to $2,500. So wrestler's going to wrestle twice. He's going to drive 500 miles. He's going to start out at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and within the next 12 hours, he's basically going to be, yeah, you can figure that out. It's a, it's a yeah. pretty unbelievable little run there for you. A- absolutely unbelievable. And, uh, of course, that felt good, even though it was kind of a grueling ride uh, after the, the whole 24-hour-plus period. I mean, they made some re- pretty good money going into the holidays. So everybody wrestled twice, drove 500 miles in less than 12 hours between 3 in the afternoon and 3 in the morning. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, nobody said wrestling was an easy business, you know. <laughs> and uh, anybody that made those days uh, certainly didn't didn't think it was an easy business for darn sure. <laughs> no doubt. All right. I think 
this today's training taught me a great deal about what you guys went through in the sport of wrestling. I have more respect than than ever for what you guys did. That's pretty awesome. All right, so where are we riding to next, Ryan? Well, we're going to discuss the second Knoxville Christmas Spectacular, which took place on a Saturday, as I mentioned earlier, Saturday night, December 25th, 1976. Uh, Rip Smith's going to open that card against the new gladiator, Jim Dalton. Uh, Don Wright, uh, in very rare appearance, uh, faced Big Bad John in a Cadillac tournament match. Uh, the first ever Southeastern Four Corners All Against All match featuring Ron Wright, the great Mephisto, Don Carnoodle, and Louis Tillette is going to happen on that night. It's actually uh, not the first one. The first one is going to happen on that day uh, during television. So this will be the second ever uh, Four Corner match. Bob Armstrong that night and Jimmy Golden, they get another match with the Von Steigers. Uh, but this time, uh, you know, the Von Steigers won the championship back from the last week. and But this time on Christmas night, the Von Steigers, the Germans refused to defend the Southeastern Championship that they had won back the week before, which was most unusual. And it gave uh, really Bob Armstrong and Jimmy a lot to argue about the situation. And so the main event had basically everything on the line. Uh, Robert Fuller was going to be against Ronnie Garvin, who was obviously managed by Big Bad John. And if Robert lost, he had to leave Southeastern again. And if Garvin lost, he only had to give up his Southeastern belt to Rob. So it's kind of an unusual situation. One guy's got to leave if he loses. The other just loses his championship. That's still a pretty good card right there, Ron, especially the last match between Robert and Garvin. My guess, after carefully looking at my calendar, there were going to be two TV shows before that Christmas night card. The One was going to be the Saturday before Christmas, and then the other one was going to be on Christmas Day that would promote that night's Christmas card, right? Geez, Dave, you're really on it, man. I got to get your calendar, man. <laughs> you got a heck of a calendar. There, I can't man. share my calendar. That's you got, uh, yeah. you I'd got have to kill date. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got the dates right on, man. Uh, one one of those TVs is on Saturday the 18th. The other yeah. one is the following Saturday, which is Christmas Day. And that, that very night, we're going to be wrestling there in that uh, in the building at Chill Howie Park. So on Saturday, let's let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, and start out with that first TV. Okay, so on Saturday, December eighteenth, the first of two televisions is going to promote this Christmas card. Uh, we open up with a great still shot again. We open up with Tor Tanaka standing behind those three stacks of concrete blocks from the last stud cast, ready to explode them boys. You know and. Uh, <laughs> And it was the beginning of about a, maybe some of the most fantastic 10 seconds of video anybody's ever going to see is Tanaka literally destroyed those concrete blocks in 10 seconds or less. And he scattered them all across the studio, you know, and it happened to be the final seconds of the TV show when it happened. So Les is joined at the set for this uh, still shot behind them, the big screen behind them. Uh, it shows the Tanaka getting ready to do his thing. And he's joined by a patched up Ronnie Garvin standing behind him and behind his manager, Big Bad John, who is taped up as well. They'd both experienced the wrath of Tanaka the night before. So Garvin had won the match. Uh, it was a loser leave match. So Garvin had won the match. He didn't obviously have to leave Southeastern. He was still the champion, but he didn't look like a winner. <laughs> <laughs> And along with his patched up head, he also had a partially black eye. So uh, Les asked the director to run the short blockbusting video. And when it had shown the last program, it totally silenced the studio audience. It, everybody was spellbound. Uh, Les was a loss for words. They couldn't hardly close the program because of just how fast Tanaka destroyed that concrete. So, and everyone in the studio was blown away again when they saw this deal back a second time. So everybody except Big Bad John, you know, and now he, and he started to laugh. As soon as the video was over, he started to laugh, a big old deep roar, and he, and he kept it up laughing until Les called for the director to stop the video, which it wasn't a long video anyway. It was pretty much over. So Les asked John, you know, what was so funny? And, and John laughed again, and he said, Something about how impressive that was. All that Japs power. 
But, uh, you know, he's, he kind of pointed to Garvin behind him. And he said, but this man, he's a six-foot concrete block, and there's no way Tanaka's going to brook him up into pieces. He said, no way he's going to beat my man Garvin. He said, Garvin's proven to be pretty much un- unbeatable in Southeastern. So Les had seen live what happened the night before. He was there to see this match and how Tanaka lost. And he was very upset at John about how involved he got that the night before. So, and, uh, and, you know, and the fact that it caused Tanaka to lose and to have to leave the southeastern area, Les wanted to show the video right then of the match. And he told John then, that right then, he said, you know, I want to show what you did last night. I want to show how you and Garvin won the match over Tanaka. So Big Bad John got upset, and he said, absolutely not. I don't want you to show that video. So Lest asked John to to tell everyone out there watching why him and Garvin looked like they'd been hit by a train. (laughs) Because they were all patched up, you know. That was a pretty good line. He says, well, tell us then uh, why you and Garvin here look like you got run over by a train last night. (laughs) So uh, he said, uh, obviously, Les says to him, he said, obviously, something happened that you don't want fans to see, didn't it? So John jumped up from the desk and he screamed at Les, you know, you better not show that video, Thatcher. You know, he says, <laughs> he said, I came out here as you asked me to earlier and I watched a little blockbusting show, but you didn't say anything about us having to watch anything else. <laughs> he says, so he says, I'm warning you, Thatcher, don't show that video. That so means he's going to show it. <laughs> yeah, so he and Garvin, they stormed off the set. And Les got angry, too. He was mad about it, you know, and he was kind of sitting there fumbling around, figuring out, now, how am I going to do this and take care of all this time that I've blown here, basically, in this <laughs> short segment? Mm-hmm. So uh, me and Rob's watching in the, on the monitor in our dressing room, and I said, let's go. So we go right to the set. And we take the heat off for less, you know, and we say, hey, we were there last night. We saw what happened, too. And uh, we think you're absolutely right, Les. Let's show that video. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then, uh, you know, so, boy, he, he, he gladly rolled it, you know. And it, it basically showed, man, how Tanaka got robbed from a victory and, and how fans had just one of those. Uh, they lost their one of their favorite wrestlers, man. And uh and I think Rob and I said, everybody's got a right to see how it happened. Les, Les, so let's call for the video. And then the main event for the night before started running. And uh, this was a no disqualification. Obviously, it's a loser-leave match, and they all are no disqualification if that's the case. And the first shot was of Tanaka. And he's headbutting uh, Ronnie Garvin, who is just covered with blood. <laughs> I mean, he's just. Tanaka's been this. He's brutalizing uh, uh, Garvin. And uh, mm-hmm. and then he covers him for the pin. And when he covers him for the pin, well, John just rolls up into the ring because he realizes that his man is to get beat. And he, he don't want to leave town. He don't want his guy to leave town either. So he just gets up into the ring as the referee's starting to count Garvin out. So uh, because the match disqualification the referee really didn't have a choice he had to stop the count he went to john and he said get out of the ring get out of the ring and uh, john obviously was desperate seeing garvin all bloody and about to lose he, he had he, no problem with uh, just going ahead and knocking the referee on his rear end because he ain't gonna get disqualified anyway mm-hmm. so down the referee goes so tanaka sees this and he leaves uh, garvin just laying there and he goes for Big Bad John, and boy, the crowd exploded, man. They wanted to see him get his hands on John anyway, and he headbutted Big John uh, several back to back to back, and now Big John's bleeding. So Tanaka wow. sat down on the big old Texan's chest, and he hammered him with those chops to his forehead. <laughs> oh, those fans were going crazy, and so was John. <laughs> so. It was nasty for him. And Garvin rolled out of the ring and he went to the timekeeper's chair where he sat and he stole his chair again, just as he'd done the week before. He took it into the ring with him, rolled back in the ring and and Tanaka had his back to him. And uh, Garvin just raised that chair up there and boy, he blasted Tanaka over the head from behind. Same as he had done the week before. And again, that 
that chair sounded like it exploded. It's like a shotgun went off and uh, Tanaka folded like a deck of cards on top of John. Obviously, man. I mean, he rung his bell. Uh, Garvin rolled Tanaka off as manager and he went up to the top rope. And he, after three flying knee drops from the top rope, he didn't do one. He didn't do two. He went three times and jumped off in Tanaka's throat. The referee was kind of getting recovered from that shot he took from Big Bad John. He crawled over. Uh, uh, Garvin covered a big Japanese monster and uh, ref counted him out. So, boy, there was suddenly silence in that entire sold-out building. It was mm-hmm. amazing. It, it was, You could have heard a pin drop. Fans couldn't believe that Garvin had beaten that massive Jap. But it was not, obviously, without the help of his manager. Yeah. So the studio fans, they they did react to the end of the match because most of them had been to the match the night before they had seen it. And boy, they started booing about how the heck that Tanaka had gotten screwed like that was going to be gone from Southeastern. Les turned to Rob and I, we're sitting next to him. And he was obviously as disgusted as we were about what happened to Tanaka. And the Garvin and Big John combination they had more heat than ever after stealing this win from Tanaka. And, and the fact that he had to leave made it even worse. So Les thanked us for coming out and watching the match with him. So Rob was on the first TV match. So we left the set. Rob went to the ring. And he went there kind of with a bad attitude. After watching that match and how rotten the deal that Tanaka got, he didn't take long to beat his guy. And he won it with a fuller leg lock. And uh, he and I went back to the set with Les. For the first interview, Les right away voiced his concern to Rob about risking his Southeastern future just to win the Southeastern championship. Uh, he was making some really good points. He said, that, you know, that it, it wasn't a wise decision to accept that kind of a match, especially since Garvin had nothing to lose but his belt. But you, Rob, he said, you got to leave Southeastern if you lose, you know. So he reminded Rob that he had just returned the Southeastern, and and surely he wasn't going to have to leave so soon. You know, I can't believe, Rob, that that you're back only here two weeks or three weeks, and and if you lose this, you're gone again, you know. And then he says, you know, that this Christmas match put Garvin and Big Bad John in the position to be able to eliminate two fan favorites in two weeks. And Tanaka would be gone, and he was gone, wasn't on that TV show, wasn't going to be seen for two years in Southeastern Wrestling. And then, Rob, they got a shot at getting you next Saturday night. So Rob responded to him as best he could, and he said he and I had talked, uh, and and something had to be done. Uh, You know, we talked after watching what happened the night before, and we talked about who's going to slow down Garvin and Big Bad John, man. They're like a train, man. They got it going, and and that this match was going to happen next Saturday night, Christmas night, because Christmas night's a night for miracles, right? So by golly, uh, this is the night to get it done. And so I added, and you know, at the, at the end of the deal, uh, you know, I added that the that the first step to getting rid of those two hoodlums, one from Texas and the other from Canada, Garvin and Big Fat John, as I call him now, <laughs> was to take that belt away from Garvin. You know, so after last night, I said we have a plan. Told Bless, we have a plan to do just that, and it's going to happen on Christmas night. So Garvin and Big Fat John Express were going to have their first wreck, man, in the studio pop. So he kept building between when Garvin went to the ring for the next match, and he did what he normally did. He wiped out another young wrestler in just a couple of minutes. He jumped off the top rope in his throat. Big Bad John put the body on his hangman hole, and then he prepared it for burial. I mean, it was it was a, it was a, just, it got to be a regular occurrence. Here's how it's going to go down. And it went down just like it always did. And then the TV cleanup crew, the people that cleaned up the building, uh, they showed up to pull that injured wrestler out of the ring. And uh, Big Bad John and Ronnie Garvin came to the set about the time the cleanup crew was trying to get this body out of the ring. <laughs> so again, John began to laugh. It's humor time again. So uh, let's ask him again, what's what's so funny this time? And John said he was happy that those Fuller brothers had come out there and talked Thatcher into playing that video, he said. It just showed how stupid Robert Fuller was to think that he could do 
what Torah Tanaka couldn't. (laughs) He said Robert Fuller had signed the same type match, but even worse. You know, he said he said at least uh, you know uh, that he didn't have to ask for Garvin to leave if he lost. Uh, You know, he should have said, "Hey, if if you beat Garvin, he's got to leave too." He said he all he wanted to do was win the belt. So it's definitely he said laughing at him and Garvin says to the fans watching. He goes, "It's definitely the last time any of y'all are gonna see Robert Fuller in Southeastern." Mm-hmm. So John had another laugh, started laughing again, and and uh, Les again says, "What's the deal now, John?" And he goes, "I'm laughing at something Terry Funk told me about those stupid Fuller brothers." <laughs> he said and he said he said he said this proved it this proved it he goes and you know let he says the less he says are you a gambling man Thatcher? you know uh, but 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 then he didn't give less time to even answer him one way or the other and he and then he looked at the crowd and he spoke directly to him pointing his fingers at him and he says uh you hillbillies don't know anything about horse racing out there do you you know he says Y'all only have donkeys and mules here. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, he said, so he, they didn't like it, obviously. And, boy, they got to, got to booing him right off. So he continued. And looking at Les, and he said to Les, he said, Thatcher, we won one-third of the triple crown in horse racing last night. We beat the unbeatable Jap in the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, now, next Saturday night, Christmas night, we're going to win the second round of the Triple Crown, the Preakness. <laughs> We're going to send Robert Fuller packing. Because and then on the second day of the new year, two weeks from now in the Coliseum, he says, we're going to win the Triple Crown of wrestling. He says, Ron Fuller is going to be leaving Southeastern in two weeks. So he got up and he's put his arm around Garvin and he said, me and you are going to make history next Saturday night. You're going to beat another one of those ignorant hillbilly fan favorites Christmas night. He goes, Robert Fuller and Tor Tanaka, gone in two weeks, then Ron Fuller. And it won't be long after that until there'll be no Southeastern wrestling, he says to Garvin, because we'll be the only two guys still here. (laughs) (laughs) They left the set laughing louder than ever. (laughs) They They were having a big day, those two. So Ron Wright, he brought the studio back to life again in the next match. After that match, uh, he went straight, did an interview about the new Southeastern match called the Four Corners match and how proud he was to be a part of the first one. Mm. And Les told fans that next week on Southeastern TV show, there would be a Four Corners match live so that fans could see how this match works rather than just hearing how having somebody describe it. So Bob Armstrong in this show and Jimmy Golden, they lit up the studio in the next tag match which was the last match of the show. They went to the set with Les, and they watched the video from the night before where they'd lost the Southeastern belts back to the Von Steigers. They finished the show with the last interview. They brought special attention to the fact that they were facing the Von Steigers again on Christmas night, but the Von Steigers refused to give them a return championship match. And how that was the usual custom when you were champions and you lost the belts, you got a return match for the championship. So he used the example of how they won the belts on December 10th, him and Jimmy, and uh, they were willing to give the Von Erichs a championship match the very next following Friday night. And the Von Steigers won the match from them the night before, but refused to give them a chance to win it back on Christmas night. So they said that they were meeting the Von Steigers again on Christmas. But because it was not a championship match, Bob says, we're going to make you pay. And he goes, and that just meant, uh, you know, that their goal was for the next uh, Saturday night on Christmas night was to beat the Von Steigers, not only beat them, but beat them in record time, that they were going to humiliate them and they were going to force them to a return championship match, the next Coliseum event after that. So uh, it was a pretty darn strong uh, television for the first of those two. All right, Ryan, that is fascinating information on another Studcast, no doubt about it. Hey, it's a good place to take a break. We'll pause briefly, we'll come back, and the story continues in moments right here with the storyteller, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. The Studcast is continuing next. 
fans are blown away with Super Studcast number 36, part one. Coco Beware recalls it all from his humble training with Ron's grandfather's brother, Herb Welch, in a barn. The same barn the Honky Tonk Man and Dr. D. David Schultz were trained in to eventually the WWE Hall of Fame. What a magical journey is in store for patrons around the world at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Part one alone is worth the $2.99. Part two, available this coming Christmas Day, takes patrons on another completely different fantastic ride for a very merry Fuller Brothers Christmas special. Ron and Robert Fuller make the holidays even brighter, sharing their real-life experiences from Christmas's past. Two of America's premier storytellers combine to relive Christmas. From Navajo Indian reservations in Arizona to sharecropper families on their father's farm in Mississippi, these stories illustrate the compassion and generosity of wrestlers around the world. TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast. Three hours, only $2.99. The best deal in wrestling? Definitely. Just got better. Hey, welcome back. It's another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. It's me, David Summers. Thanks a lot for being here. And it's always fascinating to get the rest of the story. And that's what we're going to do. So where, where are we headed to next, Ron? Well, we're going to we're going to finish up with a brief discussion of that second TV. I said there was two TVs that promoted this Christmas night card of 1976. Uh, there are going to be only three matches on this TV. One of them is going to be one of those four corner matches that uh, is going to last the last half of the television show. These matches were something new, obviously, something that we had developed at Southeastern. And we wanted uh, the first one to be seen on TV. I talked to Les about it, and he agreed with me the best way to explain a match like this with the different kinds of rules and a totally different type of match that people had never seen before was to let the fans actually see one of them live. So that's what we're going to be doing on this TV. So Von Steiger's going to win the first Southeastern TV match on Saturday, Christmas Day. Now, this show is on actually Christmas Day. Don Cornoodle won the second match on the television. And since this was Christmas Day, the personality profile featured a special guest, a visit from Santa Claus. Uh-uh. So Santa arrived at the outside of the WBIR studio. Guess what he's driving? A uh, pink Cadillac. Don't, don't tell me that. <laughs> yes, sir. Santa's driving the pink Cadillac. We got cameras out there waiting on his arrival. Les is in the studio, uh, in Studio B. He sees it on the monitor, and he starts as soon as the Santa pulls into the parking lot. He starts saying, hey, look who's here. And uh, wow, so we got Santa on Christmas right there on television. So uh, Santa gets out of the car, and he makes his way through the studio. He comes by all the fans. He spends a little time shaking hands. And uh, you know, all the kids are really crazy about what's going. And, uh, you know, so... Uh, Santa went, uh, you know, through the studio crowd, and then he went straight to the set with Les. You know, I thought it was a nice touch for that kind of special day, and uh, and and it wasn't over for fans because he's going to be appearing that night at the event itself. He's going to be there at seven o'clock at night. He's going to be greeting fans and kids, obviously, and uh, uh, from seven o'clock uh, until the next to the end of the next to the last match. All right, pretty thoughtful idea right there. I doubt many wrestling companies would do something like that for their audience. But knowing you, Ron, there could be something more to this, is there? <laughs> well, what more could I possibly do with Santa? I know you. Come on. <laughs> no, so, so the third TV match was the first ever Southeastern Four Corner match. It was live on TV. Four wrestlers entered the ring, and they were assigned their corners by the referee. Coin was tossed to see which two guys of the four would start the match. And in this match, you could tag any of your opponents at any corner, any of the four corners, anytime you want. And when you lost by pinfall or submission, you had to leave the ring and return to the dressing room. So the last of the four unbeaten in the ring was the, obviously the winner of the match. So these matches turned out to be, uh, because it's the first one, we didn't know how long it might be. But uh, it turned out to be uh, sometimes short matches. Sometimes it turned out to be long matches. So there was some strategy to it because obviously these four opponents, there were usually two heels and two baby faces involved. So, it, you know, after these things started, people started to see 
how this would work. And there was a lot of strategy involved. So the first one ever had the following four wrestlers in it. Louis Tillette's in this one. Don Wright's in this one. The great Mephisto is in this one. And Bob Armstrong's in this one. So we sat enough time for the match to go, thinking at least 20 minutes. And that meant, if need be, uh, it could go longer than one match segment. You know, and if it did, a commercial would run in its normal spot, but the cameras would continue to to record the action. And if there was a finish, the match was over, then we would show it back immediately after the commercial. So in this first four-corner match, Bob Armstrong started against the great Mephisto. And fans, I guess if you've been listening to a lot of studcasts, you got to remember back to July of 1976 when Mephisto burned Bob Armstrong. So this four-corner match started on fire, literally. I mean, Bob went for Mephisto, man. He hadn't had a lot of shots at Mephisto since he'd been back. So fans got more and more into this match as it went along. Don Wright was the first guy out. That left Bob Armstrong against the two heels, uh, Mephisto and Tillette. And uh, they'd been big buddies since they arrived in Southeastern. So they they really took it to Bob. I mean, they punished Bob the last part of this match. It went through that first segment and into the last match segment. And every time Bob needed to tag out, who's he going to tag? He's, he has to tag the other heel, right? <laughs> so when that happens, the other heel comes in and he tags Bob back. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, Bob is just getting really the worst part of this. But at the end of the match, boy, Bob made one of those patented comebacks. And and he 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 pinned them both pretty much close back to back to let the Nin boys, just him and the Mephisto. And he finished it off cleaning, uh, beating Mephisto. So interviews were made on in this TV by Ron Wright, the great Mephisto, Don Canoodle, and Louis Tillette. Those were the four guys in that night's Four Corners match. Bob Armstrong and Jimmy Golden and the Von Steiger brothers, they were all interviewed and talked about the challenge match that night. Uh, Robert was interviewed. Ronnie Garvin was interviewed. Big Bad John was interviewed, and they covered Robert's loser leave Southeastern if he failed to win Garvin's title match. But it seems like something's missing. Where were you, Ron? Uh, well, uh, that's pretty sharp for you, uh, Dave. Uh, <laughs> I'm a genius. Uh, you know, when the, Unless the listeners were paying close attention, man, they probably wouldn't have noticed that, you know, but I wasn't on that card. How, all right. How are you not on the card? I, I just wasn't on the card. I mean, I, I had my brother there and he stay, he said he's going to help me out. And, uh, you know, I was up in the control room that day on TV, but uh, nobody saw me. I got right. there early and, uh, and, and, uh, and I left after the fans left. And uh, Ron Fuller wasn't involved at all during the television show. Well, that's having a lot of confidence in the card and in your talent. So were you going to be going to the matches that night? Well, let's put it this way, Dave. Uh, nobody's going to see me there. Okay. At, at the so, matches. Yeah. Nobody's going to see me at the match. So I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. Uh, always the man of mystery, Ron. So what happened in Knoxville that Christmas night, 1976? Well, Santa arrived 7 p.m. Right on time. He greeted fans and children, and he stood at the top of this in the Jacobs building in Cherry Park. There was about a hundred foot high set of steps that you had. It was a grand entrance to that old building, and he stayed up there at the top. And as fans got there on that platform and were buying their tickets, he greeted them all. He stayed there until the bell rang for the first match. Mm. And then he spent the next four matches just roaming all over that two-story building. And doing his Santa thing with fans and kids, obviously. His just being there that night created a kind of a festive atmosphere throughout the entire night. And he left before the beginning of the main event. So the opening match was, as I said earlier, Rip Smith. And he won over the gladiator, the new gladiator, basically, Jim Dalton. A big bad John defeated Don Wright. Ron Wright won the Four Corners match against the great Mephisto, Louis Tillette, and Don Carnoodle. It was Mephisto's, the great Mephisto's last match ever in Southeastern wrestling. So he's another star that's on his way out the end of 76. Bob Armstrong and Jimmy Golden won by disqualification over Kurt and Carl Von Steiger in their non-title tag match. 
And the main event was another of those matches that the fans could not possibly guess who was going to win. You know, mm-hmm. uh, just like the week before when it was Tanaka against Garvin and loser leave. I don't think anybody could figure out who was going to win that one. And I don't think they could figure out this one either. Yeah. So this time, only Robert Fuller would have to leave if he lost. But Garvin would only lose his belt if he lost, but not his job. He'd still be in Southeastern. Mm-hmm. So Rob had only returned to Southeastern two weeks earlier. And he was still a huge fan favorite. Fans really, really liked Rob. So this match and its winner was very important to the fans. Losing two fan favorites like Tanaka and Rob in two weeks straight was going to be tough for them to take. You know, so two straight weeks before this match, Ronnie Garvin used a steel chair on Tor Tanaka and Big Bad John involved in both those Garvin wins against Tanaka. And his win in the last stud cast sent Tanaka packing, uh, used the chair again. So on this Christmas night, 1976, there was kind of a tenseness in the crowd on the introduction of this main event because this was an important deal, you know. And in this match, uh, unlike Garvin bleeding profusely as he did the week before at the hands of Tanaka, this time it was Robert doing the bleeding. Uh-huh. And the, the match seemed to about to finish after Rob barely kicked out uh, several of Garvin's attempts to pin him. Garvin had him down, pin him, went for it. Rob kicked out, kicked out, kicked out. Uh, the crowd really started to chant, man. They wanted to see Rob win. They got the old go, Robert, go. The, they were really into it. And he started to fight back. And when he did, Garvin stopped him real quick, and he shot him through the ropes in his corner, out on the floor, right next to Big Bad John. Of course, so, yeah. Of course. And then uh, Garvin act, drew the referee away from what was going on. And uh, Big Bad John jerked Rob up, and he put him into his hangman's hole, and he bounced him on his back a couple of times, and he dropped him, man, on the concrete. Now, Rob had been through a pretty long match. He's a bloody as heck. Uh, He's he's, started to make a comeback. Now he's out there. He's been in a hangman hole. Uh, He's dropped on the concrete. And then, uh, uh, as Big John, Bad John would do, he kind of uh, raced away like the coward he was. And when the referee looked around, Robert was out there face down on the concrete. The crowd was going crazy, obviously. Uh, referee didn't see anything about of what John had done. And uh, they were focused on John at this point. The referee started to count Rob out, which is that's his job. He's out there laying in the floor, but uh, Garvin couldn't wait on that. He jumped out and he threw Rob back in the ring. He was going to finish him off big time. And uh, suddenly, man, guess who appeared at ringside, man? Oops. Santa Claus. What? Santa Claus. Santa uh-uh. Claus. You know, and he'd been there all night, and he had that big old bag of gifts, you know. But now the bag was all empty. Wasn't nothing in Santa's bag. So John and Garvin, they're occupied. They're setting Rob up for a suplex, and then Garvin's going to go to the top rope to finish him off. And they didn't notice what was going on behind behind uh, Big Bad John, you know, and. Santa went over to the timekeeper and he took his steel chair. By gosh, and it, and he put it inside his big red bag. Oh no! Okay. Um, and <laughs> so Garvin, about that point, suplex Rob to the corner. Uh, you know, in the corner where John was standing, and, uh, and he started slowly up the apron to, to climb the ropes, man. And uh, and he didn't pay any attention to Santa Claus. Santa Claus was standing behind John, but he didn't. He paid no attention to Santa Claus. He's been there all night. Crazy on this. So Santa grabbed the legs of the steel chair. It was inside his red bag, and he raised that big old bag over his head. And uh, he was standing right behind Garvin's manager, Big Bad John. And uh, John had had his old Western-style black mortician hat on his head. (laughs) And uh, Santa raised that big old red bag over his head. And uh, only Garvin and John didn't see what was about to happen. <laughs> Those were the only two of the 4,000-plus people in that building that didn't see what was coming. Mm. So the roar began even before Santa slammed down the steel chair on the hat and the head of that hated Texan. You know, big fat John, man, when he got that shot with that chair, he fell like a demolished building after the explosion went off. <laughs> no. And his hat crushed down flat on his head. <laughs> So Garvin had to have heard the crowd pop. You know, no way he couldn't have. 
but he never looked around to see what had happened to his manager. He was still, uh, you know, slowly climbing the rope and uh, he's getting ready for the coup de grace. So Santa climbed up on the apron while Garvin's climbing up the ropes. And when Ronnie gets on the top rope, he slowly and dramatically spread his arms wide like the wings of a giant bird about to set sail. And uh, by gosh, he did because Santa nailed him in the back with that steel chair. And he went higher than ever before, man. He turned a complete somersault all the way across Robert's body and into the far corner. He landed on his back. (laughs) So this time, it was more than a pop like Big Fat John had just got when he got it. It was an explosion from the crowd. (laughs) And I mean, Rob crawled over and he covered him and the crowd counted with the referee uh, on all three of his hand slaps on the mat. I mean, they did the one, two, three, everybody in the crowd. By far, it was the biggest roar of the night, man. It took the roof off the building. Santa crawled up into the ring, and he he and the ref raised the new Southeastern champion's hand, and he presented Rob the belt, and Santa dumped the steel chair out of his red bag and left it (laughs) in the middle of the ring. (laughs) And Santa took his empty bag, and him and Rob left, and they they went to the dressing room, and they were totally mobbed by the crowd. Uh, The rest of the building waited, man. They didn't leave. I mean, they were so happy to see these guys get beat <laughs> that uh, they waited to see how they, the losers were going to react. So big, bad John, he finally crawled up into the ring. His hat was still flat to the top of his head. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he got on his feet and he reached down and he tried to pull Garvin up, but instead he fell on top of Garvin. Uh-oh. <laughs> and they were laying there in the pile. Boy, that was the last pop of the night, man, <laughs> right there. And then the jubilant celebration of the crowd really started. I mean, it probably lasted for five more minutes before the two of them could finally get to their feet and they left the ring. I knew it, Ron. Earlier in the show, when you said Santa was going to be at the matches, I knew you would be there. Uh, 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 That was Santa Claus, Dave. Right. Okay. Right. He he won the match for my brother. You know, (laughs) I told you earlier that no one was going to see me there that night. And I didn't lie. They didn't see me. Oh, I bet you were in the control room. No, you were at the Coliseum. So, all right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to quiz you any further on that. All right. I see where this is headed. You still kayfabe me. Let's get that (laughs) cold drink and take that seat under the learning tree. Who asked today's question and remind us once again, what it was. Okay, our question for this learning tree came from Gregory Shaw, and he asked, what was it like for wrestlers and their families to be apart on Thanksgiving and Christmas? Well, in a few words, Gregory, it was tough, period. You know, I mean, especially when we started running those two events in the same day in cities 250 miles apart. So when the company started out in, in, you know, southeastern in Knoxville, and uh, even when we first went to Pensacola, they were smaller territories in geographic size. We only had one match per major holiday, and that wasn't too bad. In southeastern Knoxville from 75 to 1979, we only ran one event on Thanksgiving and one on Christmas. And that event took place, obviously, in the city where the wrestlers lived. So they were all close to home. And both days, uh, we did those in, in uh, at nighttime. Those were nighttime events. So all the wrestlers could spend the entire day with their families and they didn't have to leave home to about six o'clock and they'd going to be back home by 11 o'clock that night. Southeastern Pensacola was the same way from 1978 to 1985. All wrestlers lived in the Pensacola area. And most of those early years, we ran Mobile, Alabama on Thanksgiving and Christmas nights. And Mobile was only 50 miles from Pensacola. So we didn't have to leave home to 530. We're back home by 1130 p.m. So the most difficult thing started in 1985 when we had to travel 500 miles on the day of the holiday, the day before the holiday, with practically nothing open. There were very few gas stations, especially on the day of the match. You know, we're driving 500 miles from Knoxville back to Pensacola. It was 500 miles, and it's Christmas Day. So, you know, very few gas stations are open. you got no restaurants that are open. Even the fast food places, most of them weren't open back in those yeah. days. Yeah. The freeway exits, 
that were busy every other time of the year, they were dark. I mean, you drive by those exits and there wouldn't even be a light on out there. Mm-hmm. There's nothing open. So guys had to load up for food uh, when they could find it. And they tried to find something in Knoxville and they stashed some away. So then in case they couldn't find anything after Birmingham, they'd have something else to eat that late in the evening. It was a tough day and tough traveling with nothing open. So after Birmingham show, that last 250 miles to the central part of Alabama after midnight, well, you can imagine what you could find open, right, Dave? Mm-hmm. I mean, you've mm-hmm. been down those, that Interstate 65. There's not much there anyway, and this is Christmas after midnight. Yeah, so, and really young people like me, really young people would not remember that back in, in that time, because today's totally different, everything was really shut down on Christmas Day. You're right. I mean, it was, it was everybody sh- just shut it down. Yeah. Business were all closed. Restaurants, gas yeah. stations. I mean, it, it was a totally different animal than, than what things are today. For families, it was extra bad, you know, because guys would have their Christmas with their families uh, by opening presents the day before Christmas. When it came to the Christmas show, you had to open your presents on Christmas Eve, and you had to travel. You know, it was it was not a good situation. Wives, obviously, worried about their husband's safety. And uh, for kids uh, to be without their dads on Christmas Day, it, it, was, it was hard. So if you happen to get snow on a Christmas Day, <laughs> you being a southern boy, you know, uh, your journey got extended by several hours. Indeed, you know? yes. <laughs> and it also jeopardized that entire Birmingham show because how you going to get from that 250 miles from Knoxville to Birmingham? You could barely do it in four hours if the highway was clear. But yeah. if you got snow and you got those bad drivers, and and I know people in the northern part of the country, they're laughing at us right now, <laughs> you know. And other countries that listen yeah. to Studcast around the world that that live in snowy parts of the world. They think this is funny. They're having a big laugh, you know, and I don't blame them, you know, but living in the South, it was different. They didn't have snow plows running up and down the freeways. Yeah. And they didn't, they didn't salt the roads, you know, so people in the deep South had, then most people in the South didn't have any experience of driving in the snow. And that in itself was truly (laughs) dangerous. (laughs) I mean, just being on the road with people and nobody knew how to drive in the snow. It was just, oh, it was so, it was ridiculous if you got snow. So Mr. Shaw, obviously this was a very hard thing for families. Uh, Wrestlers missed their, you know, missed the major holidays with their families from 1985 to 80, 87. you know, for both those holidays, Thanksgiving and for Christmas. But the one really good thing about this working twice on those big holidays was the fact that every one of those wrestlers earned enough on those those two days to give their families a heck of a lot more for their Christmas holidays. Man, I bet when you guys woke up the next morning, there was there was a sense of satisfaction because you had had done so well. Yeah, I mean, you know. It, you had entertained so many people. You brought a lot of bright spots into people's lives. Uh, mm-hmm. This night in Christmas and Santa Claus getting involved in the match. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it's memories for fans. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was a great thing. And, and you really, really appreciated being home. Oh, no doubt. I bet you were. I bet you were not just satisfied, but also a little bit worn out as well. As always, Ron, another great ride through wrestling history. This has been a lot of fun. Those fans out there listening each week know how educational and entertaining these studcasts are. We would appreciate you telling wrestling fans and friends about the studcast. This is a unique look through the studs' eyes into the sports past. And you can send them to tnstud.com. tnstud.com. Click on studcast. Every studcast, 179 are posted You can start at the very beginning, and you can catch it all. On Facebook, you can become friends automatically with a wrestling legend by simply liking and following Ron on the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud page. You can also do the same on his author page, Ron Fuller Welch. At Twitter and Instagram, it's also at Ron Fuller Welch. Get your autographed copy of Ron's novel, Brutus. 
Many say it's the next Jaws at Amazon.com, Brutus Novel, or TNStud.com, Stud Store. Personally autographed for only $29.99. That includes shipping. So think about that. If you got a little cash over the holidays, that might be a great gift after the holidays. So Super Studcast number 36, that's another good one. It begins with WWE Hall of Famer Coco Beware and his remarkable run through wrestling. Part two will be released on Christmas Day. It features the very merry Fuller Brothers Christmas special at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. If you've never heard these two brothers together, that in and of itself is worth the $2.99. Anything you want to add to that, Ron? Well, Josh, I, I, you know, there's not a lot I can say, Dave, about my brother. I'm going to apologize for him before he gets here and before we get started. <laughs> you know, as usual, he'll be a little cranky about, you know, uh, a but, little. Uh, I'm hoping to get him in the right frame of mind. And and uh, the content of, of what we, we're going to be talking about, I think, will really surprise wrestling fans. My father was quite a unique individual and. uh and uh, he saw Christmas in a way that I think fans will really appreciate. We we look forward to, to doing this. We're about to record it, actually, probably tomorrow, and it'll be on, on the air on Christmas. Rob plays a bad guy a lot, but he's got a pretty big heart. This is going to be a fun show. All right, where are we riding next week, Stud? Well, we're going to open up with today's training that finishes 1976, and we're going to finish 1976 by comparing the 1974 through 76 Knoxville Christmas time cards and their attendance. And that comparison is going to be dramatic when you hear the improvement in the talent and the growth in the business of Southeastern over that just over two-year period of time. Uh, we're going to race in the 1977, one of the greatest Southeastern cards ever, man. We're going to introduce new stars in the next stud cast, like the Mongolian Stomper. We're going to tell an Andre the Giant story uh, since he's on the first card of 1977. Uh, the TV of that first week in 1977 is going to be highlighted by the return to the, the Coliseum. On a weekly basis, I might add, uh, we're going to be talking about the Cadillac Finals that's upcoming and the NWA World Champion, the new one, Harley Race, is going to be arriving in April. Wow. We're going to finish with a great learning tree question next week. And that question is, who do you think was the most important Southeastern Knoxville wrestler ever? Mm. So, uh, and I'm looking forward to that. And I want to wish everybody out there a very Merry Christmas, obviously. And uh, and I thank all of you for another record year we've had here at Thudcast. And uh, please take care of yourselves out there and, and others at the same time. And may God bless us all in 2021. God bless you too, Stud. This is David Summers, and I approve this Studcast. And I also want to thank you for listening and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>